this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to a professor of Shakespeare studies at King's College London. She's also the co-director of education at Shakespeare's Globe, where she's been for almost two decades. She's an executive board member of Race Before Race, a collective of scholars and institutions that seek racial justice in the field of pre-modern literary studies. Her third and latest book is The Great White Bard, Shakespeare, Race and the Future of His Legacy. Farah Kareem Cooper, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This feels like such a necessary book to me and a book that really deconstructs Shakespeare and tells us not only about what the uh, circumstances around the time were when he was writing, but also how we think about it now and perhaps how we should think about it. And I really wonder how you got to this point. I'm very interested to know about your day job, but also your background, because you grew up in the US. You're originally from Pakistan. Mm, Tell us more. So, yes, uh, my family moved us to Houston when I was very little. Um, I actually spent the first two, three years of my life in England. And then I I studied, I moved to California from Texas and studied English. And that's when I realized I wanted to be a scholar of Shakespeare. So it was pretty early. And I mean, your first your first brush up against Shakespeare, if you like, came, as many of us do as a teenager, studying Romeo and Juliet in school. Yes. Romeo and Juliet, why do we always start with that? <laughs> and we still do, don't we? Yeah. I think it's because it's a play about two teenagers. And Shakespeare seemed to really understand the adolescent mindset. And so teenagers really relate to it. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, I mean, you described the way you were taught it Mm. and the fact that it does take an inspirational teacher to take you away from what can be quite a dry classroom experience. Yes. I mean, I think there's so many brilliant teachers of Shakespeare who really are so inventive. But unfortunately, in the 80s, I didn't meet any of them. (laughs) And so I remember subsequently in 10th grade, 11th grade, we had, we'd study a Shakespeare play and the teacher would play a cassette tape of a recording of the play and we'd follow along with the text. And that was our encounter with, for example, Julius Caesar. Um, Romeo and Juliet was more interesting to me because of the Zeffirelli film, because our teacher showed us that film. And really, when you see it on its feet, that's when, you know, students can get really excited about it. And you understand it's about humans with real emotions and and feeling things that we still feel today. Mm. You work at The Globe. Tell us about your day-to-day interaction with Shakespeare in that context. Sure. So uh, I've been at The Globe since 2004, and I started out as the head of research and its higher education program. But I was originally hired because The Globe set up a MA program with King's College London. So we have a joint MA, which is a 50-50 collaboration. It's unlike any other. And so part of my job for many years was to direct that MA and make sure that the students had everything that they needed and to teach those classes. But I was also chair of the architecture research group. So the globe being a sort of approximate reconstruction and made of original materials needed to have a committee that sort of had oversight over the fabric of the building and also the construction of our new playhouse or what's now 10 years old, the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. So I was on the committee to oversee the design and research that went into that playhouse. And I, I sort of invite scholars in to share their the latest research on Shakespeare. But having one foot in King's College London means that I'm also a practicing academic. And so I teach 
teach, I write, I go to conferences. Mm. And what you've written here is so interesting because it takes the concept of Shakespeare as, well, as the title implies, the great white bard, Mm. that he is somehow the uh, embodiment of Englishness, of being British, of being Anglo-Saxon, that white is good, that black is bad, that he uses the word black very much in a negative context Mm. and where that arises from in the beginning. Why is he seen, how is he constructed as such a gleaming white hope, if Mm. you like? Yes. So I I often talk about there being two Shakespeare's. There was the Shakespeare of the 16th century, which I really am intimate with, because at The Globe, that's what we focus on. We focus on the working life of a man of the theater uh, who was not a canon when he was alive. Mm. And then there's the other Shakespeare, which is the Shakespeare that's constructed after he dies. So the folio is published in 1623, which is fantastic. But then by the time you get to the 18th century, the early 18th century, Shakespeare has become this sort of artifact and something to, to worship indeed. So really, this is something that happens much later. And this Shakespeare, the Shakespeare that is a god, that is on a plinth, that is the sort of icon of white excellence and English identity, is still with us. And it's why he feels so inaccessible to so many communities. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of that was the work of of a great actor of the 18th century. Yes, he was one. D- David Garrick was one who, uh, you know, rightly worshipped Shakespeare. And he, he was known for his incredible performances of Shakespeare, Richard III being his most sort of uh, acclaimed performance. But he was invited by Stratford-upon-Avon to commemorate a statue. But it turned into a big jubilee festival. An unsuccessful one. It rained. <laughs> <laughs> it, got, it was a huge washout, yes. But what it did do was it put Stratford-upon-Avon on the map as a literary pilgrimage site, which is fantastic, Mm. but it it changes the nature of Shakespeare's work. And during the 18th century, there were other writers and thinkers and artists who were doing the same thing as Garrick, which was putting him on a pedestal, worshipping him, but somehow also extracting him from his 16th century theatrical roots. And that's what I found really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I mean, you you talk about uh, Shakespeare's birth, which we now celebrate on the 23rd of April, Mm. 1564. And of course, that's also St. George's Day. But the fact is, we don't actually know when he was born. We know it was within those few days. But the very fact of making it on St. George's Day reinforces that idea of, of, you know, being this great English hero. Although, of course, St. George himself was not white. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, the history of St. George is is, is long. And, you know, he was sort of co-opted in the 15th century to, to sort of represent England and be the sort of beacon during the Crusades. And then he becomes this patron saint of England. But um, apparently he has uh, Cappadonian roots. And so it's very unlikely that he was a white man. Mm. So let's go back to when Shakespeare was writing. And you you write this wonderfully evocative description of how you would get to the theatre, how you'd walk across London Bridge, and there would be heads on spikes, which had been tarred. Tell Mm. us more about that. Yeah, so there's a, a wonderful image from that time period in illustration that actually shows you the gatehouse of London Bridge. And you can actually see these little spikes with heads on them. And usually it was the heads of traitors. So, you know, corporal punishment was intense in the 16th century. If you were a thief, you might have your hand chopped off. If you wrote seditious 
material against the queen, you would have your hand chopped off. But if you were a traitor to the crown, and usually these are people of an upper class, you'd have your head cut off and placed on a, on a spike in the public domain so that everyone can see you as an example. But in order to keep them up there, they would they would have to dip them in tar and, and they, would, they were blackened. Mm. So your point in writing all of this is by the time they get to the theatre, they're kind of primed for violence. <laughs> yes. They're maybe a little bit primed for hatred and there are often huge figures of hate in Shakespeare. Yeah. And those people are quite often not white. Yeah, yeah. I think there's across early modern drama, you you have villainy that's either villains who are either racialized, so blackness might be attributed to them, like Macbeth, who was probably white because he was Scottish, but he's referred to as Black Macbeth by the time he's seen as an utter villain. And so blackness is still attributed to them. And then you do have villains like Aaron the Moor from Titus Andronicus. Who interestingly also has a Jewish name. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. But I thought Shakespeare was doing something a bit different. I think it was very common in the Middle Ages in drama to have villains, vice characters to to come out on stage in blackface, just to kind of make that equivalence between criminality and blackness. Mm. And that's linked to Lucifer, the ultimate criminal, Mm. um, who in medieval iconography is blackened as well. And so Elizabethans would have made these sort of metaphorical associations. So when you have a black villain, then all those associations are there. And so Shakespeare's drawing on these associations, but he's also kind of interrogating them at the same time, which is why I think his black characters are much more multidimensional than a lot of black characters you might see in other plays. Mm. And what was the racial situation in Britain at that time that he was writing? Well, essentially, we know now because of the research of Imtiaz Habib and Miranda Kaufman that there were black people living in England in the 16th century and prior to Shakespeare's time. And they lived freely. And there were people who worked in Southwark who were black. And so it led me to the question of who, what's the demographic of Shakespeare's audiences? It's not unlikely that they were much more diverse than we've been told. So, yes, this is, a, this is beginning to be a more multicultural London mm. at the time. We know that there were people from all over Europe who were living there. And, you know, my colleague Nandini Das has done amazing research to find other people from India and elsewhere coming and visiting and moving through London and migrating to London. So this is a much more global city. So he would have been very aware of people of other races. Absolutely. I mean, Shakespeare's company was performing at court every year. Mm. And so he would have met diplomats. He would have seen people from all over the world. We know that the ambassador from Morocco came to to London in 1600. It's not unlikely Shakespeare encountered him. Mm -hmm. So why is it important then not to not to idolise and not to fossilise his work. Why is it important for us to see and reinterpret it in different ways now? I think it's because of this construction of the bard, right, this 18th century figure who's been made into sculptures and, and literally ossified, and that he was constructed in the name of English white identity. And, you know, this was during the slave trade when this happened. So white supremacy is very much sort of at the root of this construction of Shakespeare. Mm. And so we need to make sure that we're not preserving that in aspect. We need to really think about what Shakespeare was in the 16th century. This was a jobbing playwright who had scrappy plays. Lots of people were influencing the shape of his drama. And he was really interested in in a plurality of voices and ideas. And that's the Shakespeare that I think is more exciting 
And it means that you can do what you like as a director with his plays. And nothing's going to happen to them because there's a folio that tells you what they were. Yeah. You focus on different plays throughout the text and and you start off with Titus Andronicus, which Mm. is his first play, but probably his least well-known. Yes, yes. It had a bad rap for many, many years because it's so violent. It's based on sort of Senecan tragedy, ancient Roman tragedy, which was very, very violent. And Shakespeare was kind of having a go. But he... He wrote this play with such an intensity of emotion. There's so much love in this play, which sounds really strange. But when you think about it's about family relationships, it's about the relationship between parents and children and what happens. I mean, Aaron the Moore, the, the Shakespeare's first black character, is the only good parent in the play. And that is a really kind of striking intervention to mm. make. And then you have a mixed-race child in the play on stage in the 16th century. This is shocking. And so I just think it's a it's a, a wonderful, wonderful play. And you, when you see it on stage, it's one of the most theatrically viable plays as well. Mm. We did it at the Globe in 2014. And people kept fainting. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> it's really violent. <laughs> um, let's move on to Antony and Cleopatra and his so-called tawny queen. Yes. So there's lots of discussion about what colour Cleopatra really was. And in fact, there's a very current debate where Egypt is claiming her back and saying yeah. she was not black African because she's just been portrayed in that way in in, Mm. in a film. Tell us more. So there's two Cleopatras, and they often get blurred. There's Shakespeare's, and then there's the original Cleopatra. And there's lots of, you know, historians who talk about that original Cleopatra, who emerges from those texts as quite different from the from the way Shakespeare is writing Cleopatra. He's drawing a lot of his knowledge of her from Plutarch. And Plutarch was not crazy about Cleopatra and saw Cleopatra as, I suppose, an interference into a great man's life and a great man's career. And so Shakespeare's kind of playing with this. But what always strikes me about the debates about Cleopatra is whether she's black or white. And I think there's a kind of inherent racism about about that debate in itself. And she's been portrayed on stage for, for years as a white woman. But Shakespeare says himself that she's not white. Mm. So whether or not the original Cleopatra was Greek or Macedonian or African is irrelevant when you're staging Shakespeare's play. Mm. So that's what's really fascinating to me. You go on and you're you're talking now about Othello, the Moor of Venice, Mm. as as he was called. You say Shakespeare's Duke of Venice shows us the way racial thinking works in this white ruling society where prejudice is buried deep in minds that appear on first glance to be more enlightened. Yes. Unpick that for us. So a lot of people have approached Othello as a play about race only in that you have racial phenotypes referenced in the play. But actually because he's doing so well and he's successful that it's not a play about racism and that if it is, Iago's the only racist in the play. That's a really easy way to dismiss what actually is going on and that in white ruling societies of the time that there's an inherent xenophobia. Mm-hmm. There's an inherent notion of your supremacy and in particularly in Venice in the 16th century where the patrician elite ruled for centuries and you couldn't even marry anybody that wasn't of your class. So to marry someone outside of your race was going to be a huge violation and a cause for uh, concern about blood pollution. And, you know, there are documents that talk about this. And so uh, Shakespeare's kind of drawing on this history and on this kind of anxiety about, you know, interracial relationships. 
So what I'm arguing essentially is that the racism in, in Othello is more systemic. It's more unconscious, which is why he seems to be doing so well until he gets married to somebody who's white and patrician. And the, the Duke says, well, you know, we need him. So, you know, we have this notion of interest convergence. So I will be tolerant as a society when it becomes my in, in mm. my interest. Mm. And Venice was very tolerant for its own interests, which is why it allowed Jews to live and work there, because they were the only ones allowed to practice usury. Mm. Let's talk about Jews in Venice, Mm. because, of course, it was a very multicultural society. It was a kind of port city. There were all sorts of people living there. And then we come to the Merchant of Venice with Shylock in it. Was Shakespeare an anti-Semite? I I don't know. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think what was really fascinating is when I went through this play again, And I sort of placed it next to the history of anti-Semitism, which really starts in the Middle Ages. And you get all of these different kinds of stereotypes which emerge during that period when Jews were living in England that become so heated that the Jews are expelled from England in 1290. So there is a deep history of anti-Semitism in England. And then so by the time Shakespeare's writing this play, the Jews are not living as a population in England anymore. There may be a few. There are people who have converted. There may have been some Jews that people didn't know about. But overall, there is no sort of code for for being Jewish at this time. And so Shakespeare's drawing on medieval hearsay, and he's pointing to it. And there's this scene where two Venetians are describing Shylock's reaction to his daughter missing. They describe him focusing only on his ducats, really. My ducats, my my daughter, my ducats, my daughter. And he keeps going on about his ducats. And so people have made judgments about Shylock as a character based on on that story. Mm. But it's a story. And that's what's so fascinating is we forget that this is a report by two people who would be very biased against Shylock. Mm. And so that, for me, crystallizes what Shakespeare's doing with with Jews in this play, saying, this is a story that we keep hearing over and over again. How true is it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talk about colonialism and you do this through the lens of the Tempest. Mm. Tell us us about how that play can help us look at our our history and and the devastating effects of of colonialism. Yes. I mean, for decades, post-colonial theorists in in literary studies have been talking about The Tempest as a great example. The Tempest has also been sort of appropriated by various artists and who have turned it into an anti-colonial play. You basically have a situation in which it looks like colonialism. Someone has gone onto an island. Of course, his circumstances were exile, but nonetheless, this white European man has settled on this island with his daughter, and he has enslaved two of the island's inhabitants. One of them is Caliban and the other is Ariel. And Ariel is of the air, of the spirit, and in the Elizabethan period, that element was far superior to the earth, and Caliban is of the earth. And so he is dehumanized consistently in the language. He is enslaved, so he is doing labor for free and not benefiting from it. He's accused of wanting to rape a white woman. And there's a lot of language of darkness and monstrosity that circulates around him. And Shakespeare gives Caliban a voice, and Caliban says, this, this was my island first. I, I showed you uh, how to live on it. I, I showed you the best fruits and the best berries, yet this is how you've treated me. Mm. So that speaks to the experience of, of First Nations people. 
Oh, absolutely. Mm. You also go into the the idea of race and class mm. and of misogyny. I mean, there's a great deal of there's a great deal of rape. There's a great deal of forced marriage. There are mm. things like Taming of the Shrew, which is perhaps the most anti-feminist thing ever written. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And yet you seem to be standing up for Shakespeare in, in all of this. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't know if I'm standing up for Shakespeare. I think what I'm saying is that his work is an amazing space or a workhorse, I like to call it, for ideas about injustice. So whether or not he is standing up for justice or he is reinforcing the status quo, we can't always tell. And sometimes he might be. And I will have a problem with that. But rather than sort of cancel Shakespeare, I, I want to be in dialogue with his work because I actually think his work has a lot to do in the service of social justice by enabling people to have conversations about all of those things that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Why is he still relevant today? That's the big question. And I, uh, just for the reasons I've really just been saying is that, you know, today we're thinking about the most urgent issues, existential issues like climate change. Shakespeare has a lot to say about that. And you can use his work as a way of educating people and talking to people and enabling them to have a conversation. His work is powerful and it's enduring because of its focus on political action. Mm. And I think that's something that we we still need today. And definitely young people are really interested in questions about activism. And they're being forced to teach Shakespeare, to study Shakespeare in school. So how about teaching them about the Shakespeare that was interested in these things? Mm. What do you think of the concept of race-blind casting? Mm. Well, I think obviously it had its purpose in the early 20th century when it was established in order to integrate black actors into the mainstream of of Shakespearean theater. But over time, what a lot of actors have realized is that actually it's it's asking them to sort of, you know, censor or to erase their identities. You know, white actors have this advantage in that they can play a white person. They can bring all of their body, all of their framework, their references, their ideas to a role. But black people can't. They have to imagine what it's like to be a white person. And so that's one aspect of it. It's the actor himself and the work that they have to do. The other aspect is race neutrality as a concept, politically, socially, in education, elsewhere, erases difference. And what that does is it also erases or makes invisible the disadvantages that people have been placed in. And so when they bubble up to the surface, it looks like, oh, well, it's a meritocracy and you haven't made it. So really, it's about you or it might be your race or your stereo, you know, a stereotype about your race when actually there are systemic disadvantages for people of color. Mm. And that is true of the theater industry. It's true of the rehearsal process. It's true of the publicity process and also the reviewing of plays is that blackness and brownness or Asianness becomes invisible. And so people are seen at the same level. So a set design might put a black actor at a disadvantage. Costume design, lighting design might put them at a disadvantage because the default position is whiteness Mm -hmm. all the time. And so if you do race-conscious casting, then you have to think from the beginning about the logic, racial logic of the play, the anti-black language. Maybe I I need to cut this language because I've got black actors in this play. Or maybe I put these words in this actor's mouth so that it doesn't confuse people. Maybe the family needs to have a racial logic in it. For example, an 
Hamlet, if you're going to have a black Polonius, maybe his children should be biracial or mm-hmm. or black, etc. And then black people and people of color can come in and sort of use their own frame of reference to build their characters. And do you think that lines that we find offensive now should be cut? And, and I mean, this goes much, much deeper than just Shakespeare. For instance, the, the debate about Roald Dahl novels. It, it, I mean, these things were all written at a time yeah. of the time with a particular context. But should we not be hearing them? So I think we have two very different situations. When you've got a novel that was written, then on the page... You might have to present it as is. If it's offensive to children, you think it might be offensive to children, then you just present it differently. There are lots of different versions of texts. You know, there are lots of school versions of texts, of every literary text, but they'll always be the original. So you're not losing it in any way. On stage, it's very different. The plays have been cut since Shakespeare's time. The lines have been cut for all sorts of reasons. Restoration actors cut lines. They changed the endings of the plays because they didn't like the unhappy endings. And so if a, a line isn't serving the story or if, if it's causing harm or offense to the actors who are performing it, then it might be cut. But obsessively cutting anti uh, or, or obsessively cutting racist language then also absolves Shakespeare from racism and again erases that relationship that he has to race in his plays. So I always recommend that directors and actors have a deep conversation about these lines and then decide, is this going to serve the story or not? And then they cut. Mm. Um, Although, I mean, Shakespeare's prose or his poetry is meant to be so sublime we shouldn't touch a word of it. Well, we've got the folio. So we can just pick up the book and read it by our fireside whenever we want. But on stage, actors have been cutting lines since his own time. That's very true. Finally, Farrell, what is the future, do you think, of Shakespeare's legacy? I think that if we are able to take him down from his plinth and stop worshipping him, because I think he would have been horrified by being worshipped. I think he would like to have been admired. He wanted to be rich in his own time. He wanted to have status. That's true. But I think if we take him down from his plinth and look him in the eye, that's kind of how I've read Shakespeare. And that's why I find him entirely accessible, exciting, challenging of my views. And sometimes I, I don't like what I see. And that's okay because that's humanity, Mm. right? We have to take people on their terms. And if it's overly offensive, then you can walk away from it. But I don't think as a culture we should walk away from it. I thank you for opening my eyes to so much more in Shakespeare. I shall read him entirely differently. Your book is really, really fascinating. So thank you for that. Thank you. That's Farah Kareem Cooper and her book is The Great White Bard, Shakespeare, Race and the Future of His Legacy. It's published by One World. And you've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer, Nora Hull. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>